Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. Uh, John is sitting opposite me. We're back in the HQ for the first time in a number of weeks, John. Feels good. It feels, feels really it good. Feels, feels very, feel like you're at home. Well, I'm at feels, home, yeah. He's, yeah, he's yeah. in his own little living room. I've got the shoes and socks off. Yeah, no, and, he's got the uh, hooves. The hooves The hooves are up. All is good. And uh, John, this week we're going to talk about Austria, the Austrian housing market, particularly Vienna, and yeah. how they got things right. But I'm going to talk about, well, that's about, interesting because I've been hearing that Austria have sussed. You completely. Know, when, when looking at housing stuff, which we have been doing over the last few years, you know, Austria is the one country. And Vienna Vienna is the one city up. that, yeah. So, so we're going to talk about that? the, we're, like, that's exactly what we're going to explain because Great. housing for, if you're in Dublin, if you're in London, if you're in Vancouver, if you're in the States, if you're in, frankly, any English-speaking country, Housing is a problem. But interesting, we talked to Sweden, said exactly the same Stockholm yeah. is a problem. The Viennese have got it right. I'm just back from Vienna, John. <laughs> I'm just back. It's a big week, though. We have Kilconomics tickets went on sale. They are flying. I'm going to be talking to Naomi Klein on yeah, Friday that's going to be great. in the RDS. There's a couple of tickets left for that. And you were saying that you, because the premise of the book, yeah. Doppelganger, her book, is that she was consistently mixed up with Naomi Wolf, who I've also interviewed many, yes. many years ago. And there is actually kind of a physical similarity. And they were both coming from the very liberal tradition originally. And you were saying you got them mixed I, well, up I too. Well, I did. And, and I was kind of going, when I heard the name, I kind of went, oh, that one. Because I thought she was... Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf, who was anti-vax and anti-all that kind She's of stuff. She's with your mate Bannon, Steve Bannon. Yes. She's Steve Bannon's best mate, yes, bestie. that's right, yeah. But clearly I was wrong. But interesting, she wrote a book in 1992 called The, the Beauty Myth, which Jermaine Greer, 
mm. one of the greatest thinkers on yeah. feminism and an amazing person. Somebody I've also interviewed, an amazing person, Aussie, funny, Who laugh. Who you interviewed? I know. <laughs> you, John. You, you. This is, the, this is the peak of the whole thing. This is the culmination of all I these years. I knew you'd get there at some The stage. culmination was talking to Johnny Boy. But uh, interesting, Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, which was basically about how girls and women are constantly, constantly, it's not It's not a very original thing, but it's mm. a constantly, constantly abused by beauty. Yes. Right? To look beautiful, to look yeah. pretty, all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting, Jermaine Greer, who wrote The Female Eunuch, which is one of the seminal books about feminism, said that the Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, was probably one of the most important books about feminism. And it's quite interesting. Now, she's gone off, as you said, down the Steve Bannett rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's Naomi Klein is saying, hold on a second. So it's basically a battle of the two Naomi's, We'll talk to one of them next Friday night. <laughs> and uh, Kilkenomics, just kilkenomics.com. Have a gander there. Things flying along there. We're going to talk to a couple of our Kilkenomics recidivists over the course of the next couple of weeks. But it's Kilkenny. It's the 2nd to the 5th of November. And it's a total laugh. And it's great crack. And it's always great crack, Mac. Before we get into Austria and Vienna and all things Sacker Tort and all that kind of good stuff, just want a, a quick shout out to a, a young man I met in the airport last week. I was sitting there reading my paper and we got into a conversation. And this young man, he had gone on a, a one-day trip. Did he hear your voice? He did hear my voice, actually. Didn't he say, ooh, I've heard that before. <laughs> but he went to London, flew over the crack of dawn to buy an engagement ring for his girlfriend. And then he was flying don't, off. Don't screw to, it up now, John. <laughs> I know. I, I, I just want to wish him, look, I hope it went well. Patrick, you know who you are. But he was going off. The two of them were heading off to Switzerland. And he's a podcast fan. And, and he's he a big podcast fan. So, Patrick, I hope it went well. Congrats, I hope. Woo! Patrick, just for me, do not tell him anything. <laughs> right? This is a long, decades-long rule. Tell him nothing. <laughs> when you meet in the airport, say, hi, how are you? Yeah, bye. <laughs> tell him nothing. Anyway. But come here. Vienna. You. Austria. I, I, go. Well, you know, John, you know when I go to a country or a city, I always like to read a little bit of literature you from do. the city. And I've just finished a book by Joseph Roth called The Emperor's Tomb. Now, Joseph Roth was a Viennese and died in 1939, just before the Holocaust. Yeah. He uh, was Jewish, so he was very much hounded out of Vienna. But this book is extraordinary because it starts just before, just the outbreak of the First World War. Mm. So just the fin de siècle Austria that we're going to talk about. Not Austria of the 1900s, so mm -hmm. modernism, all that good stuff. Starts then, goes through the First World War, and then what you see is the gradual degeneration of Austria, the gradual radicalization of Austria, the emergence of ultimately the Nazis, and the emergence of, interestingly, of course, they didn't know that the Holocaust was going to happen, which is one of the bizarre things about histories. When you know what happened, yeah. everything is more chilling. Yeah, right, these yeah. slightly, oh, I wonder, is that going to happen? Whatever. But it's an amazing book. If you want to read it, The Emperor's Tomb by Joseph Roth. And we spoke about Joseph Roth before. Have we? He of the, yes, he was also. I we should were have been paying about, attention. We were talking about measurements. Remember the guy who's writing about ah, measurements? That right, fella. That right. fella. Gotcha, so it's gotcha. all about the Austrian Empire. But yeah. what is fascinating about everything about the Austrian Empire is that at the turn of the century, so 125 years ago this month, actually in November, mm. right? is the anniversary of the secessionist movement in Austria, which is the home and the basis of modernism. 
And I spent, as you, you see, you'd have hated going there with me. I spent a huge amount of time in these museums, right? right? This secessionist museum. You're going to explain, so what, what was that? So secessionism was this, was the essential idea of modernism. So going from conservatism to modernism at the very end of the 19th century. Mm. And the secessionist movement was set up to secede from conservatism, to change. So basically, if you go to somewhere like Vienna, what you see is this, the tail end of the Austrian Empire is this enormous amount of very classical architecture, mm. very, very classical sculpture, very, very sort of, when I say neoclassical, so harking back to the Romans, the Renaissance, yeah. all that malarkey. It's a beautiful city. It's an amazing city. Yeah. But these guys were modern painters, modern writers, and they said, no, hold on a second, we're going to break free of the tyranny of tradition, and we're going to secede, and we're going to create an entirely new movement. And this is the basis of that movement, modernism, of which James Joyce was one of the great exemplars, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the idea, because again, if you think about most novels up until then, were written with a sort of like like Charles Dickens' novels are all about. There's a big moral story. Mm. There's somebody who's upset, and there's somebody's a victim, and and then at the end, it's, there's a sort of a a culmination. There's a, as the Americans say, there's a closure, right? Yes. Whereas Joyce is just a stream of consciousness. Right? Yeah, it's a yeah, totally yeah. different way of looking at the world, right? <clears throat> so if you look, if you look at what happened in Austria, so this secessionist museum, John, right? The, if you're into this sort of thing, there's a call. There's something, I will called, be by the end there's of a, something called the Freeze of Beethoven, right? And it was by Gustav Klimt. Now, Gustav Klimt was the the main player in yeah. modernism, okay? Yeah. In I this love kind of his stuff. Actually. Art Nouveau. Yeah, yeah it looks yeah, amazing. It. Yeah. And the posters they have, they're so yeah. arresting. And it was it was so regarded as so transgressive as the time. And then you've got Egon Schiller, the, the sort of Austrian impressionism that comes along a wee bit after him. Poor yeah. Schiller died of, he died of the Spanish flu, the poor lad. And then if you look in architecture, right, you have all this, this, this guy called Otto Wagner, another guy called Adolf Luce. Mm -hmm. They built what we now know to be modern Vienna. So right. in contrast to the classical thing. Then, of course, you had Freud knocking around. Think about this yeah. psychoanalyst, right? Yeah, yeah. You had Karl Popper in philosophy. You had Wittgenstein in philosophy. And these guys are hanging out in this place. They said you have Gustav Mahler in music, right? Yeah, yeah. So imagine all stuff. these yeah. people. So then you think to yourself, why was there this revolutionary movement in Austria at the time? And then it goes back. Remember, we've always said that what creates revolution is diversity. Different mm. people, different yeah, ideas, yeah. right? So it goes back. We we think of Franz Josef, right? When we think of the Austrian Empire, we think of these guys going around with funny little hats, right? Yeah, big tashes. Big tashes and funny hats yeah. and getting shot in Sarajevo, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. actually, Franz Josef, who was the longest serving sovereign in Europe, was an unbelievably liberal person. So what they managed to do is create this extraordinary multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-linguistic society called the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Nothing has ever been seen like this since, right? Yeah. And of course, Vienna is the capital of this place. Yeah. And during the late 19th century with the Industrial Revolution in Austria, a huge amount of people are sucked into this capital. So it's the fourth largest city in Europe. It's the eighth largest city in the world. And it's the fastest growing city in Europe in 1900, right? right. right. So all these people are going in. And so it's, it's like a pressure cooker of ideas, of new people, of people, of Czechs, of Slovaks, of Poles, of Jews, of Serbs, of Croats, of Romanians, of Hungarians, all these people into mm. the mix, right? So it's it's the absolute essence of diversity. It's New York of its time. It's the New York of its time, exactly, yeah. exactly. And out of this comes movements which say, hold on a second, we're going to break away with tradition in everything, in art and culture, et cetera, yeah. right? And of course, one of the areas also 
that they broke away was in economics, John. Right. And we, you know, the way we always think are, you know, the way sometimes economics is regarded as existing in a parallel universe to other culture, right? Mm. Because it has become, become sort of matsy and sciencey. Yeah. But no, economics is part of the same intellectual fulcrum out of which comes great art, great writing, design, architecture. So what you see is this Austrian school emerges with a guy called Ludwig van Mises and Friedrich Hayek. And of course, later, Hayek, yeah. later, although he wasn't part of the school, but he was part of the tradition, our friend Schumpeter. Ah, Schumpeter. So it we all, love Schumpeter. We love Schumpeter. So it all comes from this tradition. The whole idea of modernism was individualism, right? You don't necessarily have to abide by laws and rules that are passed down. Yeah. You can change things and you can make things modern. But why was this, why was there such a big change at that time? Well, this is the interesting thing. This is the idea of this fin de siècle mood, which they talk about this ain't. End, what? Say that the, again? The, the, the end of the century, right? right? So this is this is all about trying to capture what was going on in Vienna in particular and in Paris mm. to a lesser degree, but particularly in Vienna. And what it seems to me to be, it's the same sort of dynamic that propels economies forward, which is the dynamic of people coming from the countryside, trying to reinvent themselves, trying to mm. reshape their world, trying to lose and shed their skin. So like Poles and Czechs and Jews were coming from areas where they were actually either the dominant bunch or a racially targeted yeah. bunch. And they arrive in Vienna and they try to, to transform themselves into new people. So if you take that basic energy that comes from people trying to have a different way of expressing themselves, mm. you put it all into one big cauldron of a city. That city is a monumental building site. So they're trying to build to keep up with everything. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. And what you get is you get a radicalism you get a self-expression that is totally different. And what you also see is this self-expression is also there in economics. So people like Schumpeter and Hayek and von Mises, they were essentially very much against what they saw as central planning, right? Okay. They, saw, they saw at the start of just before the First World War and then mm. after the First World War and into the 1920s, what they were observing from Vienna was this obsession with central planning. And their idea was that central planning, and they wrote this, I mean, Hayek wrote this years later in a book called The, uh, the Road to Serfdom. And his idea was that central planning, which was a Marxist idea, mm. was the font of fascism and Nazism, right? So he was saying that basically the left argue that fascism is an extension of capitalism, right? Yeah. That they're both sort of right-wing ideas and these ideas end up in the same sort of ballpark, right? But the Austrians were saying, no, 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 no. Central planning is the midwife of Marxism. Yeah, I can see that too. And the actually. midwife of fascism yeah. and the midwife of Nazism. Yeah. So there's a massive big intellectual chasm between these people. Yeah. But all this is going on in Austria at the time. And of course, what happens when you get a city that is absorbing in migrants from everywhere, you get a housing crisis. Yeah. And the, this is how the seeds of the amazing housing initiatives and the amazing housing legacy that the Austrians now have, that the Viennese now have, actually has its roots, ironically, in the secessionist movement, That's in brilliant. art and culture. It's a, it, and just before we get into the housing part of it, I can see where Schumpeter is coming from with this, you know, th this revolt against conservatism. So is the, the, the gales of relentless destruction? Well, you're absolutely right. It's, he's talking all about this notion of yeah. creative destruction. 
So he's creative saying that he's saying that, but the pro, one of the dilemmas for Schumpeter is creative destruction in the 1920s in Austria. There was far little creativity, too much destruction, right? Right. Okay. So, so, so what most people were yearning after the First World War was for stability, some sense of normality, because you can imagine the First World War destroyed yeah. lives and countries, and of course, what happened in Austria, it went from being an empire of 50 million people. Mm to a country of 5 million people. I mean, that's incredible, actually. Isn't it? Yeah. But but this is almost like um, an intellectual fourth turning to hark very back much, to, yeah, very to much like Neil the, Howe. Yeah, very much like the, if, if, if Neil Howe had been contemplating non-American events, yeah. what he would look at is these moments where society shifts on its axis from one status quo to another status quo. So what you were seeing politically is the breakup of empire. And the First World War. What mm. you're seeing politically and socially is the breakup of conservatism, the emergence of radicalism. What you're seeing in art and literature and architecture and design is modernism. Mm. What you're seeing in economics is modernism. And basically the battle lines that defined the 20th and 21st century, still defined, were drawn in Vienna in a yeah. short period of time between about 1900 to about 1918. So I have been fascinated by this. And then, of course, John, I'm walking around the city Amazing public spaces. Yeah. Really, what the impression I got was really calm. It was cool. It was a city within itself. It was you know, quite relaxed. Lots and lots of different types of people hanging out. An amazing public transport. And you got a sense that somebody is thinking about this city all the time. Yeah. Somebody is in control. And then, of course, you look and you look at the housing market, John. And that's where you see all this calm, all this planning, all this idea of a city at ease with itself is based on the fact that they have a housing model, which is profoundly different to ours. Do you know what, Mac? Let's explore this, because in Ireland we could learn so much from this. So let's explore that after a bit of this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The most famous thing about Vienna is Ultravox. Oh, Vienna. 
Ultravox, can you name any other Ultravox songs? Um, no, isn't that a no, pub not quid, famous pop quiz? Yeah, it is. It is. It was a great song, though. Yeah. It was terrific. It was a great song. It was a very good video. Do you remember when he was coming yeah. downstairs? It was so, so 80s. It was 80s gothic. Yeah. It was new romantic meets gothic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. With a little bit of synth in the background. A little bit of synth, big shoulders, the whole Loads of big hair and big shoulders. But speaking of Vienna, John, right? So if you look at any indicator of quality of life, of the best city in the world to live in, Vienna's always up there, one, two or three. Yeah. So how is that? And you contrast that with Dublin, right? So... Vienna is the most livable city in the world, according to the economists, they do these mm. indicators, right? Dublin is the 37th most livable city in the world. And of course... And what's, what is it based on? It's based Not on... Not just on cleanliness. It's and, based on cleanliness. Oh, it it's is? based on job opportunities. It's based on public transport. It's based on public spaces. It's based on cost of living. And of course, a huge amount is based on housing. Yeah, of course. A massive amount is based yeah. on housing. And that is where we fall down. Well, we fall down on... So many metrics when you're there. Yeah. Right? yeah so many yeah. metrics. I mean, just their public transport is extraordinary. The lack of cars on the streets, the public walkability, the parks, all that sort of thing. And it's safe. Yeah. It's really safe, which is a thing that I know when I've been away. Yeah. That people that's Dublin, a, that's you know, become a massive, massive issue here. But but what, what anchors the whole thing, John, anchors the whole thing is the housing market. That Vienna is a city that is expanding rapidly, like Dublin. Its mm. population is up by 12% in the last four years, which what, is amazing. And what's driving that? Immigration, migrants, okay. migrants, because yeah. it's a good place to live. And yet they don't have a housing crisis. So the question is, why? And then the reason I gave you the bit of history at the top is that there was a thing called Red Vienna in the 1920s and the 1930s when the Social Democratic Party, or the Socialist Party, mm. as they're now known, right? They were more the Social Democratic Workers' Party then. They came in and they said, look, a bit like Dublin after independence, we have all these tenements. They had huge tenements, right? Because all these people were coming from Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic and Slovakia and Croatia, all looking to make their fortune. So mm. basically the, the housing market couldn't keep up. And the Austrians said, or the socialists said, we are going to change all this. And they started to build public housing. And the public housing in Vienna is extraordinary. The stuff they built in the 30s, there's a thing called Karl Marx, Hoff, you'd love that. You live mm. up there. You're beside your mate with all the beards, you right? But these are amazingly, brilliantly designed public housing. So they went hell for leather and all in for council houses. Mm. And they have continued to do that. So all those indicators of quality of life are not anchored by, oh, it's lovely public parks and the people are nice and the shopping's nice, anchored by something really fundamental, which is the cost of living is low because the cost of accommodation is low. And then the question is, how do they do this? Yeah, but right? who actually pays for this? Well, that, now, the interesting thing, who pays for it? The state, they issue municipal bonds. But I'm going to tell you about today in Vienna, right, John? Mm. More than 60% of the city's 1.8 million residents live in social housing. 60%, right? Wow. And it's estimated 80% of all residents qualify for public housing, right? So it's really? not a minority, it's everyone, right? Rents are regulated by the city, right? So that no resident, no resident can spend more than 25% of their household income on rent. Wow. Right, no resident. So there's a, there's a totally different attitude towards social housing. Totally then. different, totally different. So basically the reduced rents, you've public provision of housing in a massive, massive scale. And interesting, I find, what I found really fascinating is that all developments are mixed use. So you have rent-free 
and really swanky penthouses in the one development. Right. So their whole idea is we're all going to live together, right? There's a, there's a new development that I was looking at on the Danube. And it's amazing because you have a combination of 850 units. Mm-hmm. There are really posh penthouses for really rich people on the top, entirely in the private sector. And there are rent-free, entirely free state houses in the same block. And everybody lives together. Wow. Now, I mean, people can choose if you want to live in a sort of a middle-class or middle-class ghetto, you can do mm. that. But the vast majority of people live cheap by jail. And there it ends up in a situation, right, where the average monthly rent in Austria is 611 euros per month, right? In contrast, the average rent in Ireland is 1,792 euros. That rent in Vienna also includes all your bills. So your heating, your electricity, wow. everything. Right? Wow. This is a country at the same level of income as us, right? Yeah. So we're in the same level of income, yet our cost of accommodation is three times higher than the Austrians, and their city, Vienna, is twice as big as Dublin. And the population is rising. So it's not as if it's an old population. It's changing. It's, all, it's a rising population. And the question then is, how have they continued to do this? Because if you look at the split now in Vienna, they have 25% public housing, 25% rent control housing, 25% owner-occupiers, which is the Irish mm. idea, and then a mix at the end of which a substantial amount is cooperative housing. So, so people buy into co-ops. So you join a co-op, the co-op finances itself, and the houses become part of a co-op. So you you you, you don't buy and sell the house, you leave the co-op. Yes, yeah, so yeah. Keeps- I mean, that, that was a thing that, that was very popular in, in London, in the 80s in particular, uh, I remember. But... But how is this being paid for? And how did it how did it begin? Like back in the 30s, how did that when did well, they get so, the money? So for the that? whole thing began, right? So in the 1930s, there were hundreds of thousands of people living in tenements in Vienna. So the socialists came in and said, look, we're going to change this. Mm. And they continued to build these public houses. Now, how they financed it was a guy, interesting, was a guy called Breitner, who was the mayor of Vienna at the time. A guy called Hugo Breitner. And he said, okay, well, we've got, to, we've got to raise taxes. So they raised taxes on land. They did this idea, almost the same idea as our friend. Henry George. Exactly. So they tax land. So basically, if you want to develop land, you, the developer, is going to pay a huge premium because of the uplift in right. developing land. So if you buy an acre, right, and you wait and you lobby that state to redevelop that acre or rezone it, and you get the rezoning, the state gets the money, not you. Right. And the states get a significant proportion, not you. Yeah. So basically what you do is you take away the developer. But right? you but you have to have an incentive for the developer, though, at the so same time. So there is at the very top, yeah, but there's an incentive. The incentive is sufficient, but it's not okay. outrageous, right? Okay. And also they've all the cooperative stuff, there's no developer. All the public land, there's no developer. So you take out developer fees straight away. So the state is in the business of financing Building, financing, building, allocation. But they, they also need the, the expertise to do that. They need to call in expertise to... But they to have the expertise. It's a yeah. bit like what Sean Keyes was saying in the podcast a couple of weeks ago. They have the expertise. Yeah. They, ha- they haven't downsized the state or downsized the housing departments in order to facilitate yeah. the privatization of these things. So they've kept it. But their whole idea, I mean, Austria is a humming, wealthy market economy, Right. But they have decided in housing that this isn't going to work. Mm. So they've kept the housing very, very much regulated. And the fascinating thing as well is that the traditional argument in economics is if you in- introduce rent controls, the rent controls are very, very good for the people who are 
who have those rent controls. But they're very, very bad for the people who aren't in the rent control zone. Yeah. So they say the rents will go through the roof. Yeah. But that hasn't happened in Vienna. So Vienna stands as the antidote to the idea that rent controls are always bad, which is something that neoliberal economists continue to parrot all the time. Mm. And you look at Vienna, you say, hold on a second. But it's because, and this is the interesting, there is social buy-in to social housing. And this comes from this, what they called Rot Vienna, this red Vienna mm. idea of the 30s and then after the Second World War and all the way through, that this city and the citizens of the city have accepted that social housing is the way to build social cohesion and build a better city. I mean, if you look at, so, you know, in the 30s, they introduced taxes on luxury goods. So if you bought a Maserati or the 30s equivalent, you pay through the nose. Mm which actually makes complete sense as well. And taxing consumption in luxury basically penalizes people who are very, very rich. So that's a very, very good thing. Yeah. And you have land. The guy's name was Breitner. Do you, you might remember Paul Breitner, John? No. Do you remember this is football? No. This is, you know, I, 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 know, I know you're very good in the fantasy football, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you, yes, if you go very deep into 1970s football. To real football. To real football. <laughs> to the German team that won the uh, 1974 World Cup. Right? Right. And there was a guy called Gert Muller played up, up front. Yeah. They beat the Dutch, the uh, Dutch of the total football. I, I was seven at the time. So was I. <laughs> but I was obsessed, okay? <laughs> now, this team had a fellow called Paul Breitner playing for them. Yeah. And Paul Breitner, who actually had the same name as Hugo Breitner, who was the communist mayor who brought in all these taxes to support Paul Breitner was also a big lefty. Right. right? And he was part Were of... Were they related? That, I, that's what I don't know. I have to do a little yeah. bit. Of, I mean, maybe Breitner's in, like Kelly in German. Yes. Murphy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paddy Murphy. <laughs> yeah. okay. But for those of you who like your football and like your communist football, there's a very that's interesting very interesting rabbit hole you can go down, which is German communist footballers of the 1970s, of which Paul Breitner was the main one. Right. I'm going to now pull Macker out of that football <laughs> rabbit hole and get back to Vienna so, and housing. So, but the point is, John, if you look at the foundations of the Viennese housing model, they are very, very old. And they come from a shared idea that this is the way we should run the country. And they also stem from an idea that you cannot get wealthy by just speculating on land alone. We yeah. have the opposite, which is we encourage and even eulogize and have TV programs about developers. Okay, right? so, so what can we learn? So what can Ireland in particular learn from the Austrian model? The first thing you can learn is that if you want a very good quality of life, yes, don't look exactly, don't look at income per head or GDP per head. Look at quality of life indicators. On most of these indicators, Vienna comes out top. Interestingly, Vienna is fourth in the world in all these indicators. Cork is in a very decent 24th place. Really? Yes. And Dublin is 113th. Um, wow. Isn't that extraordinary? So what we can learn... Wow. Yeah. So what we can learn is the following. If you want a good quality of life, you need cheap, affordable housing. That's it. If you want cheap, affordable housing, you have to have an entirely diverse mix of the source of those housing. So you have to have cooperative housing. Mm. You have to have owner-occupiers, which are financed by banks like we have, right? Mm -hmm. You also have to have housing, which are financed by pension funds, but where the rent is controlled. And you have to have municipal housing, 
where the state actually builds municipal housing, where mm. where the state issues municipal bonds. So, for so it's a whole varieties, a potpourri of housing, a potpourri, a potpourri of housing options. But this is exactly what you need, and you need buy-in. Yeah, for people to say this is the way we're going to go. Yes, yeah. And what you have in Ireland is you've no buy-in. So you've got the There's land no leadership. land lobby and the housing lobby and the middle classes and people like ourselves who own our houses say, well, actually, house prices going up. That's not a bad thing for mm. me as an individual. And then suddenly you split the population. But you mentioned leadership there. Yeah. It comes back to, I also think, every city in Ireland needs to have a directly elected mayor with executive powers and tax-raising powers. So you get the impression in Vienna that somebody is getting up in the morning and when they're brushing their teeth, yes. they're thinking yeah, about yeah, Vienna. Yeah. Somebody's doing, nobody's doing that in Ireland. Nobody's getting up in Dublin and brushing their teeth saying, how will I make Dublin better today? How will I make the transport system better? How will I make it more integrated? How will I make the housing system better? Mm. How will I actually stop the centre of the city becoming a repository for homeless people, for violence, all the stuff that we heard all summer. Mm. You walk through somewhere like Vienna and you say, it can be done. But as you said, but it there's means, a different power structure. There's a different power structure, yeah. and of course, in Ireland, the reason that the Dáil doesn't want Dublin to have a directly elected mayor with executive powers is that somebody who's directly elected by Dublin will be much more powerful than the Taoiseach because yes. they'll have much more individual taxes. Yeah, they'll have a much greater stake. So what you have is a fear on the part of the present Oireachta structure in Ireland of the power that would be vested in a mayor of Cork and a mayor of Limerick and a mayor of Dublin because those people would be bigger and more powerful and yeah. speak for more people and have more money. Can I, can I just ask you then, just on, on a political point then, so Red Vienna began in the 30s yeah. and it was very much a socialist and, and yeah. egalitarian kind of yeah. society. But recently... As what I've been reading about when you when you read about Austria and Vienna and stuff, you see, like as we've discovered throughout this whole tour of Europe, that there is the rise of the right and the right wing, the FPO, the Freedom Party, the yeah, Freedom Party, uh, are, and, there, are, and there's and there's other more right wing parties the, in Austria. Yes, yeah, 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 but the the FPO, the Freedom Party, have twenty eight percent of the vote as we speak, and yeah. they're due to win the election next year. Yeah. So what is that going to do to this kind of way of thinking? In Well, I think that, I think what you, what you noticed, and we've, we've spoken about it before, like all the major cities seem to be much more liberal mm. than the countryside, with the exception of Ireland, which is really weird. If you look in the divorce and abortion referendum, the, particularly in the abortion referendum, you take somewhere like Dunleary, where we live, which mm. is traditionally meant to be very liberal, yeah. And you take the Aran Islands, which was traditionally meant to be very, very mm -hmm. conservative. Yeah. And the Aran Islands voted more for abortion than Dunleary in the last election. So Ireland has changed, yeah. right? But the, the fact is, as you say about Austria, that the regions tend to be much more nationalistic, much less enamored with immigrants, yeah. migrants, and much more likely to go right wing. We see that in France. We see that in Italy. We see that in Germany. UK. The UK completely. Sweden. We see it everywhere, right? Yeah. And, and Austria, of course, they have, despite their sort of red Vienna, they also have black Vienna, which was Nazi Vienna. Right. Don't don't yes. for, don't course, don't forget course, that for all the far sighted social democrats in Vienna in the nineteen thirties, there were a hell of a lot of Nazis. And of course, the little man with the Taj himself was Austrian, mm. right? He wasn't German at all. You know, that's the, isn't that the great joke the Germans always say? 
that the Austrians have spent a century pretending Beethoven was Austrian and Hitler was German. It's actually the opposite of the case, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so in Austria comes with an added flavor, unpleasant flavor, which is that this is a place where Nazism flourished. And only because, it's an amazing thing, only because the Austrians managed to do a deal with the Americans. Like we forget that the Soviets occupied Vienna and the Soviets left Vienna in 1956, 1955, they left it. Right. And the yeah. Brits, it, so, so Vienna was like Berlin. It was occupied by the four powers. And the Austrians managed to do a deal with the Americans, which said they would remain neutral. So they're not in NATO. Mm. They're still very, very neutral. The place is full of spies. Do you know that? Yeah, Vienna, it's full of spies. You're the third man and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you come back to your basic point about the right wing, that's very, very clear that the right wing in Austria has been growing from, do you remember Georg Haider, who was the original very, very right wing guy? Right, yeah. And, you know, you scratch the surface of many European countries and you say, well, do you want Africans in here? Do you want Muslims in here? And the default position of many people is no, they don't. So you have this entirely obvious fracture at the centre of Europe. At the end of our discussions, John, as you say, between the liberal tolerant cities and the illiberal intolerant countryside. Right. right. So, yeah, you're right, John. I mean, what you're seeing is these trends. And maybe at the heart of this, John, is going back to housing, that housing is about dignity and politics is actually about dignity. And if you feel dignified in your life, and if you feel that you have, we've said it before in the podcast, a stake mm. in society based on the four walls around you, your own gaff, right, that you can afford and that you know is secure and won't be taken off you and that you're not locked out of the system and you're not living in a box room in your parents' house in your 30s, yeah. right, then you're much less inclined to be volatile. You're much less inclined to say, it's that fella's fault. The one with the hajib or the black guy or the African guy or the Latin American guy. Yeah. You're much less likely to have that urge to kick out when you have a home. But if you've got no home, then you've nothing to lose. And if you've nothing to lose, then you go with the guys who say, you know what, if we kick these people out, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Your life will be made immeasurably better by his life being made immeasurably worse. And we know that economics isn't a zero-sum game, right? We know that you, everything can grow together. And actually, to come right back, that flourishing of Austrian culture was all about the cake getting bigger for everybody under conditions of diversity, where intellectualism, economics, politics, commerce, all flourishes together. And that's where we should go, but you don't do that without good housing. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.